Welcome to the Practice Podcast, conversations probing the nature of practice. I'm your host, Dave Firon. Inaction research, what's that? Well, it's what Dave Firon Jr. and I have developed to anchor currently the study of the nature of practice, but concurrently the nature of conversation, and they flow together. That's what we'll discuss again today in this conversation and look at in other times ahead. What do I mean by flow together? Practice is behavior. It's action. It happens. Conversation is action. It happens. There's actually a practice of conversing. I call myself a conversationless. I just gave myself that title. But conversation is definitely something that both is a practice, but also enacts a great deal of what we know about a person in practice. Most of what they do requires connecting with other people, conversing with other people, and finding meaning with other people. And that's a lot what we'll talk about today. What is meaning making? Another kind of practice? Well, it's pretty much essential to everything we do, every place we go. So let's hear Dave and me explore several things, but getting to the question, meaning? What does meaning mean? Here's Dave and Dad. Well, folks, I hope you've been listening to all 121 episodes of this uh, practice podcast. But if you have to choose a few, I hope you will go back and listen to Dave and Dad or Dad and Dave. Uh, periodically, we have a chance to do a bit of a deeper dive into communication called conversation and practice called enactant, enacted uh, behaviors. And what I thought we'd do is go back to one of the earliest ones, Dave, where based on the work you did as an undergraduate and through your master's and doctoral program, you showed a lot of deep interest, speaking of deep, in a field of study called social what? Psychology, social psychology, social, you could call it sociological social psychology. That was it. That's my, my old brain was trying to find the illogical part because yes, I because, thought that that was cool. Well, because uh, being in a sociology tradition, um, they of course needed their own brand rather than the psychological social psychology, which, right. which was um, in, inferior and, and uh, um, you know, a bunch of rats and mazes as far as they were concerned. So well, so uh, <laughs> well, what do you sociological psychologists look at if not humans running around in our mazes? Yes, that's probably right. But, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know what the latest as far as the the uh, divides among the fields, but um, I, I tended to cross boundaries anyway. And yeah. so well, no need to choose sides. You're a chip off the old block. Maybe the maze is what the, the sociologists study. Uh, well, what was uh, the 
remind me if, what got you started on thinking about uh, what led to social inaction, which is the theme of your dissertation and our, and basically this whole podcast series. Um, well, I guess, uh, you know, more trips down my memory lane would, mm -hmm. would be looking at my uh, undergrad experience at Colby College in Maine, uh, where you also attended some years before. Mm -hmm. um, we had uh, some of the same professors are still there in sociology that, that you had. Um, but I, I kind of started out kind of broadly in biology and, and um, uh, a few other areas. But then when I hit organic chemistry and realized there's a lot of math involved, I I <laughs> kind of glommed on to sociology and uh, backed had, away, backed yeah, away. <laughs> it had had uh, you know, and mostly kind of found found the professors I uh, I I liked, and um, uh, Tom Morioni in sociology was um, kind of turned me on to the um, social psychology. His one of people he studied closely was Herbert Bloomer. We had talked about in earlier podcasts and symbolic mm -hmm. interactionism. Um, who was also inspired by George Herbert Mead. And, um, and so I, I, and I folk, I, I enjoyed George Herbert Mead as well, because I was also taking classes. I also had like a, a, a degree, um, a couple degree focuses, one in ch um, human development from child development, but also more broadly than, um, and that involved taking psychology classes and philosophy classes and education classes and Lots of things. So, so I was a dabbler, and then, and in one of the classes I took, I think as part of that was neurophysiology, and had a great neuro neuroscience uh, professor there. Um, um, oh no, I just had his name in my head, and it popped out. Um, Yetarian, uh, um, that's right. Uh, I think Ed. Oh, I Ed Yetarian. I yeah. think it was Ed. If I'm, forgive me if that's wrong, he, but <laughs> I think he, ret he retired a few years ago. As I remember, so uh, yeah, a um, long time. But and, I remember uh, you were very interested. Yeah, probably yeah. if I had had his classes before Tom Orleans, I would have gone to neuroscience. But as it was, I I kind of my last two years, I got as much as I could out of out of that, and then did a senior project, um, kind of pulling some ideas together um, with George Herbert Mead and neuroscience because. Um, you know, one of the things that interested me in neuroscience classes was how well Mead did in the, you know, basically in the turn of the century um, of uh, predicting what turns out to be pretty consistent in in the neuroscience of at that time around 19, um, you know, the late 80s. But I, I think in, in the bit that I followed neuroscience over the years, it seems still still consistent in in you know a lot of most of the foundational neuroscience supports what mead was trying to do with his um philosophical and mostly psychological approach to the the um the act and behavior um his early focus we had talked about the difference between uh, behaviorism in the time the stimulus response model in how mead um had uh, uh, and, and some of the other um, pragmatist philosophers of the time, Dewey, um, Hearst to some degree, were rejecting that stimulus response model mm -hmm. um, in favor of one that was more um, in, you know, interactive 
perception of the world influencing behavior and behavior influencing perception are much more interactive. And I think what we, we've eventually, um, well, I eventually started calling this an action point of view, but, but more broadly, you'll see that reflected, I, I think, in, in most areas of psychology and, and neuroscience. That said, though, there's still a very strong notion, and not just in the you know, kind of public of stimulus and response explaining behavior. Mm -hmm. I think you still see that even, even among researchers and economics oh. and poli sci and certainly, you know, everyday news <laughs> journalists, they think that's how behavior works. They, they, it's what you essentially is so many things, but it falls back to what you can count. And uh, a lot of the publications required in particularly in recent years, uh, must be quantitative. You know, you're supporting social scientists there mm -hmm. at Johns Hopkins. And there's a whole thing about if you can't count it, it really doesn't exist. Yeah. That, that kind of goes against uh, perception. Look, if, if I, I don't need to have it counted, I, I see what I see and I, it means something to me. I can't put your, your stick in my head so you can count what it means to me but I know what it means to me. So is mm -hmm. that, am I giving the right argument for that? Because I th my gut tells me that that's too, uh, abst too abstract and too opaque for the kinds of uh, uh, easy studies that get done. Yeah, I think that's part of it because a simple answer when you look at behavior is, is you know, X causes Y and, mm. and what are we, and, and the, you know, the behavior's assumption is you could see what in the environment is X, it causes behavior Y. All that's in the head is a bunch of connecting wires between eyes and muscles, um, mm -hmm. and that's really all you need to know. Um, but you know, very early on, when people started understanding how the brain works um, at the physiological level, it, it you could tell that it's it's much more complex relationship than that. And and you know, and now um, after about a hundred years with you know, increasing levels of sophistication and measurement. And it's, it's pretty clear that, that, you know, the complexity of the brain is certainly along the lines of, of what comes in between, uh, you know, external information and physical behavior. Um, and, and the more you look, the more complex it is, but um, still there's some, you know, general principles that maybe we could try to fit in today that, that, that still hold pretty well with George Herbert Mead um, and, and then some of the other ideas we've been talking about. Um, sure. Uh, just real quick on your study. I remember reading it. It was a while ago, uh, the one you did at Colby. Um, you, you, I think, focused a lot on, on the, the limbic system, uh, mm -hmm. the seat of emotions, the certain raw emotions, and uh, among the other things that you cited as you were doing the study. You know, later in our conversations for the podcast, as well as aspects of your thesis, you talk about emotions uh, as something that's real, yet <laughs> all you can see is the external reaction to an emotion, I guess, unless you're looking at your own. So where does that all, uh, is that part of the stew that you were working on? To it's, yeah, it's kind of part of the stew. Um, and um you know, like for, as far as the limbic system, that was one of the things that 
areas that I, I learned, especially from um, Dr. Utarian, because he and, and um, his research partners over the years were some of the early ones to really look at closely at the physiology of the brain and um, in, you know, the, the early to mid eighties um, before then there was a, there was kind of this model of the brain where you had the reptilian brain, mm-hmm. which was just basic um, um, fight or flight, you know, mechanics. And then you had the limbic brain, which was a little more developed for the mammals and, and the birds that, that was a seat of emotions, like you say, so it gives kind of more value uh, laden um, sophistication uh, to the internal um, relations of the brain and also uh, the, the communication aspects of emotions. And then the, the neocortex evolves um, uh, on top of that. And, and so for, for humans and homo sapiens, that becomes the most evolved thing. But the idea is that they're all separate somehow. They're all, they're all um, yeah, somewhat distinct. Like but what, doors that open and close. As yeah, you know, but yeah. as soon as they really start looking at the wiring of the brain, that shows that the limbic system is actually most closely uh, integrated as far as just, you know, the wiring and the functionality with the most complex aspects of human language mm. and social interaction. There and, you, you know, right away, that's kind of pointing at, at not just, um, you know, mead and, and that, but also what we talked about with the, with the social bond, you know, mm-hmm. the, the idea that perhaps every single linguistic social interaction also has some sort of assessment of the quality of the relationship with, you know, a, a, a range of emotions attached to that. And especially the ones in, in, in the shame and embarrassment family, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As, as being specifically social emotions. And, you know, I, 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 every now and then I've looked at some of the neuro, neurophysiology around that and see, and see, yeah, that seems to be the way the, as far as I could tell, the way the, the, way the wiring works, you know, my, yeah. my neurophysiology education ended at college pretty much, but, um, I, you know, I, I, I try to pick up some readable articles every now and then, and yeah, it seems to hold up. So, so there was that. And also, um, uh, my senior paper that I wrote was was um, largely based on the work of Gerald Edelman, who's um, mm-hmm. a prominent neurophysiologist, um, uh, did a lot of his work um, throughout the 80s and 90s. And um, I think I think also I, I, I picked up a kind of a, a meta-analysis of his work. And I think a, a more recently, in, in, you know, from a few years ago, and, 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 and most of the consensus is that his work still holds up pretty well with, with current findings. So, um, so luckily I think I picked a pretty good one to, to first integrate with Mead, but then, um, hopefully if, if, you know, I can use it to talk more broadly about neurophysiology, if we want to, want to get into that a bit tonight, um, and you know, how it relates to social psychology, but also some particular concepts like meaning, what is meaning? Yeah. Yeah. I kind of thought that when we, found this time to get back and have more conversations uh the first the first thing that keeps coming to my mind particularly now that i am 121 uh conversations into this uh this work is that it seems to me that the reason that i've chosen to use a conversational motif as opposed to 
something more structured and, and predictable is that I feel that a different caliber, different something about meaning occurs as we're in what we're doing now, as we're both engaged in trying to connect each other's ideas to a larger question, uh, of course, but I'm struggling at this moment to, I think, convey something that with which you can return <laughs> to and work on until we've made some meaning out of this last minute and a half. Can you get what I'm struggling with here? Well, I guess the question is, do you want a, a lecture on what is the meaning of meaning from this point of view <laughs> or, or more of a general conversation? And I could probably do either. <laughs> well, let's, let's do with a, a, a short lecture for sure, yeah. because uh, there are points you mentioned earlier, some principles, both Edelman and, and Mead and others have kind of worked on for a long while. So let's put some grounding in it. And then if I still feel a little uh, kaflunked about not knowing meaning of meaning at the end of that, I'll ask some more questions. Yeah, well, I mean, we could kind of keep it at, um, you know, because your podcast started out with Katie Vale talking about conjectures and what is the nature of practice. And I think um, uh, as far as um, the concept of meaning goes, it, you can think of it not just in you know kind of the everyday terms but how does it fit into this notion of practice and how practice is um something in in between the habits we build up in our course of work especially as we're focusing on our work in organizations but also the the ability to um make those habits conscious talk about them, become a focus of conversation and of learning and of teaching. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, and, and in the process of bringing those to, to mind and, and, and working with others, then the, the, those practices can evolve and be carried on by others. Um, so the conjecture is that where does meaning, well, where does meaning fit into that conjecture? you can think of it as part of practice as spanning a lot of levels. It, it can fit into the habit level. What's a habit. And then what is it to um, make meaning the meaning of things and situations and objects in life, a part of conversation and what, and what does that then do to, meanings and, and, you know, the experience of meanings and meaningful things and, and meaningful understanding of, of one's, one's life. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, I guess we could start real deep with that and then <laughs> blast through into, into, um, you know, the, the social levels if we wanted okay. to. Um, uh, and so one way to do that in broad terms is, is to go back to where I was talking about what, what was Gerald Edelman's early work um, yep. or, you know, kind of core work in coming up with a, a model of really of consciousness mm -hmm. um, and of how meaning both kind of what do you call a primary consciousness, which would be shared 
with um you know most animal species birds and mammals for sure mm -hmm. um and then what he called higher order consciousness which was pretty unique to um you know certainly all we have today are, are other humans and and probably before that um other language using uh, um you know hominids whenever that started um but you know which was you know probably well i don't know when <laughs> Uh, but long, by, long time ago. <laughs> by about 750,000 years ago, you had, yeah. you had Neanderthals and the, the Nosians and, and maybe some others, um, uh, and, and Homo sapiens and some interbreeding and some dying out. But around then you pretty much had a lot of what was, you know, a lot of the roots of social behavior, probably language. Um, they don't know mm -hmm. about written language yet, but certainly, um, a lot of what we have for language and he also had some very profound changes in the brain i mean amazingly profound compared to like chimpanzees you had you know chromosome two fusing and so humans are humans are the only uh, uh species that has i think i have the number wrong either 23 chromosomes yeah 23 chromosomes versus 24 because two of them fused and then you have lots of other genetic changes um you know they've already found hundreds so far that are very specific to making language possible and many other aspects of of social uh social life to the extent yeah. where you really have to think about what what is the capacity of you know the the evolutionary advantage of the social that could go right back down and uh, and alter the the genes in a very short amount of time evolutionarily um, like if you compare a chimpanzee and a chicken the changes aren't nearly as profound as what the between the the chimp and humans as far as as um some of these capacities so um so you know in that sense you know what is it about language then that is that is adding to such complexity uh in, in the brain and i guess to boil it down quickly we can think about what's the difference between stimulus and response versus what mead was saying intervenes and and also what edelman and, and other um uh neuroscience and, and other psychologists have found and a lot of it is to do with how what is the relationship between interior and exterior information um, exterior information is what we sense and you know like the what comes into the eyes hits the retina yeah. and and in the brain there's you know there's there's neurons that pretty much mirror exactly what each each um um you know cell in the retina sees but but, but what's interesting about that is those those parts of the brain um, almost immediately also start receiving interior information uh -huh. uh, information about um, all sorts of other pri uh, uh, ex experiences and also the states of um, um, you know various kind of value-laden aspects of your physiological being are you hungry or not but also um, you know what other sorts of visual associations can you get so right away you, and, and it's right down to like layer upon layer where you know you'll see one layer of cells is interior and one layer of cells is exterior and they're right on top of each other I, I think there's maybe three or four layers like that and so um 
you know, at, at the very roots of what we might call meaning is a, a blending of external information and interior expectations and kind of this value added layer um, that gives kind of a salience to things so that, so mm -hmm. that uh, what Mead would call um, the impulse to act is the bringing together of these factors to see something in the world needs, you know, attention or basically activity, but then perception, which you would say is the next stage of the act is bringing this together. And it's, it's never just stimulus, but it's, it's very much um, putting the world together at that moment by what's relevant and, you know, what's in the past and even, um, you know, for for other animal species what's what's in your surroundings what are your other you know other animals that you might be doing with at the time what are they doing um but then for humans that gets a whole other other layer yeah. uh of complexity and and it gets kind of you know very challenging to, to figure out what kind of grasp what that layer is but we had talked in the past about um you know this kind of simple uh perceptual um you know uh, uh behavioral level of meaning being uh, the looking at the world as um, objects and a tendency to act towards objects and situation and he literally defined meaning as this tendency to act um, uh -huh. so it's it, you know it's when it achieves that salience that has to do with with your um definition of situation and moment and how you act towards it that you get to this level of basic meaning mm -hmm. but then he he thinks about well, what what is special about the linguistic yes. act um and it seems like that you boil it down to presenting it 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 you like the vocal the vocal act you can you'll hear yourself in a sense you hear yourself speak and you can have the same reaction to your own voice and and symbols that others would have and there's that kind of recursion of mm -hmm. that uh being able to interpret the one sounds in the way that others do social others gives you that um next level of complexity where not only do you have this mixing of inner and outer and emotional value but you have the recursion of recursion of that level and i guess you could say so so basically you can reflect upon your experiences in a symbolic way and that gives a whole other level of complexity that seems to have not only um, changed our brains and and genes, but also let us, you know, co-evolve, of course, with the ability to, to have um, social interaction with others at uh, uh, that next level of complexity, then, you know, the, the animals calling to each other or dogs growling, growling at each other and backing off, but, you know, knowing what you're growling about and what it means and what the history was and, and being able to carve it on stones and, and share it with the tribe and right. everything else that right. goes. <laughs> right. So I don't know if that's. No, I, I get it because I think um, as I'm riding up this elevator of, uh, of uh, the development of moving toward salience, and then that with some other things 
predisposing yourself, not just by others, but making yourself say, I'm going to act on this now. Now we can act just like I am in the moment, speaking, talks, talk, <laughs> turns of talk. Uh, I could run, I could, there's so many choices. But what I also find, and I think maybe being in a state of mind we call practice, helps it with is that we can we can sort out some things or separate out some things we do not have to act upon and uh, give us a, 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 some ways to sort the values out of what we should act on and then we act. Uh, so this, maybe we're not even conscious we're doing it. I think sometimes we are just like I am at the moment. Trying we're literally to talking about consciousness at, at various levels. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and and what Mead calls the uh, distinguishes the I and the me as mm -hmm. as what is what is the self, what is the experience of self and identity. The I being this kind of running experience, which of of perception and action, mm -hmm. um, without you know without that kind of comment, symbolic language comment upon mm -hmm. one's experience. When you add that next level of consciousness he calls that the me i have an identity what is who who is who is it who is experiencing life it is me but what is me it's the language it's the literal expression of language that that has been developed by <laughs> other human beings yeah in their yeah. community yeah and all that history so yeah. in, in a sense the 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 me of what what we're the me that we're talking about is just the story, the ongoing story of life. The I is the inner experience, but neither one of them is. You have to have both to have the picture of who we are. So, they're both they're both working together. Yeah. So, so yeah. So the Buddhists so, can say, well, eliminate talk, and you have the true self. Well, not really. You kind of have half the true self, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And they did say that, so they they don't completely not talk. Yeah, <laughs> but they do talk. They do say that listening probably is is a something akin to being religious. You know, to li actually listen. Yeah, I'm something sure we, I don't do I'm, very well. Well, I'm sure we just slaughtered you know the, the four thousand years of Buddhist thought. But oh well, <laughs> you know, I, I would say <laughs> they can write We probably letter. have the subtlety wrong, but in broad sense, maybe. Uh, um, you know, the, the you know, mindfulness meditation tries to quiet the inner talk, and it yes. is a very different experience that you have. But, but, um, and and so they say, well, the ego, you know, let's not get too hung up on our inner story as the basis of our identity and ego, because you know, it could be when it's halted, then you find that there's something else. But, uh, you know, we're kind of making the point that life as we go about it has both <laughs> yeah, <laughs> interacting yeah. at the same time. So. Now, looking at the, the me, I think my hunch is that that's where I would take all of these uh, conjectures that Peter and I have been involved in and others. And I would, I would basically say uh, there's, an, there's a way that that me, uh, given all the things you've talked about, Dave, can somewhat gradually or maybe suddenly form into an aspect of a story which endures. So mm -hmm. I am a human being, but whoop, wait a minute, I'm a teacher. Right. Who, yeah, well, externally, someone said you're a teacher, they pay you money to teach. 
No, but in but in this other sense, I like to keep that in my story. Yeah. So, uh, what is that? Do you think that is getting us between need me and and practice? Is that is there some connection there? It is. I mean, he's basically saying, well, what people talk about is, you know, all of social world and culture and and every other distinction that you're going to make. I I think though keeping at that um interaction sense of what is the story um you know we we looked at other episodes of like well how, how do stories work what it, what mm -hmm. is it when you look at people in interaction how are they doing it in the moment and you can see a lot of detail on how that how people are doing stories like a very basic one is you know when you're having conversation you'd normally take turns of talk when you get more than two or three turns of talk without the other person interrupting you, you are doing a story. And then <laughs> within that, what's the story about? How does it progress? Um, when, how do people um, um, get into it? But, but, you know, maybe the, the, the going back to where the stories come from, it was a capacity somehow that said, um, you know, humans or earlier hominids figured out how to do and it became a per, an important point of how we converse absolutely you yeah. know you, you, you know animals kind of growl at one another in turns but to be able to stop growling and and have a little story and what's in the story it's like the history of the of the tribe and and where to find the best fruit and <laughs> you know and then how to develop agriculture and and you yeah. know so civilization uh rests upon stories uh, but it's still a practice. It's an activity. So the, the the very the very uh, making of story, if you will, is a is a fundamental human practice. Yeah, but it's a, a technique. It's a method. Yeah, and it, it to accomplish what? What is our story making done to accomplish as a person, for example? I guess we could say literally human civilization and human group life and our ability mm -hmm. to um, not be uh, groveling in the dirt mm -hmm. like when we are raised by wolves. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, leave, leave you growing up in Maine to, <laughs> yeah. to another podcast. I know you've been upset by when mom and I sent <laughs> you out. Put down in, the wolves. I'm sure into they do the, as best they into can. Into the wolf but... pack. But, uh, <laughs> but I, 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 you see, I think uh, uh, at the most macro level, which you've just said, uh, our ability to make stories and live them uh, and use our life to make stories is, is a socially collected uh aspect of what constitutes community team you name yeah. it all yeah. the all the uh, collectives that we we name which again is a story we you know is it really a team or do we just you know whatever i don't but yeah so i'm thinking but what does it mean to the individual what is there a power that one feels when sort of the the guys of the brain clear a bit and through the clouds comes this insight uh that uh feels very right feels like hey this is me in the world yeah not, well not just a world that's created but this is who i am this is me me <laughs> yeah well i think i think what we're doing is is we keep we keep trying to take it back to the practice and what is practice it is a, a course of 
action and interaction. So bringing it back to basically what are the dynamics? How is it put together? So, so when we talk about meaning, we're usually thinking about abstract. What is, what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning yeah. of, of, of uh, marriage or love mm -hmm. or something like that? No, we're talking about dynamics. What is practice? Practice would, you know, I think all of Peter Gale's conjectures were about what is practice as a dynamic interaction. And so yes. what does that mean? Yes. Um, and so how is anything in my you know, in my life, uh, not just the, you know, reflections that I write down in the journal, but how did I just get through this last situation I was in? How are we doing this conversation now on a podcast? How does a, a, a leader at a business meeting get an idea across? It's not, you know, the abstract qualities of the idea. It's the doing of conversation, uh -huh. persuasion and methods of, of, you know, pointing out what's relevant and, and, you know, winning out, managing the emotions, managing the social relationships the entire time. And so if you had a good recording, maybe you could look at how that's done. Which you <laughs> did a lot of, and, uh, and we actually demonstrated a little bit on our last conversation. I, I really like what I'm hearing. I, I really do because it's, it's so easy to default as an as a person to um well let someone else come up with a meeting and just tell me mm -hmm. i mean i i don't want to uh, it sounds like work if i have to be in the middle of things i have to be doing and listening and talking yeah. and acting and uh, i'm just gonna sit back and maybe they'll write it up someday i'll read it yeah and why should students sit through a lecture they they should just get the notes and then yeah, I'll just get the, the notes. Fill in yeah. the, the exam yeah. later. Yeah. Yeah. But what I feel, and I mean that, is that when you are in the doing, the practice of really making some meaning with others, mm -hmm. about others, and all the rest, that 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 in that connecting, that those inner those moments of interaction are really what stimulates the brain going back to your earlier study and burn some deeper synapse connections that we actually get a little bit more grit into our thinking about what what is and what matters to us because we're not just passively sitting back and letting stuff being handed to us yeah i mean think about it from the point of view of the brain from the point of view of the brain there's literally nothing else but the immediate dynamics of inputs and behaviors and all this stuff mixing together in the brain. Mm -hmm. And so there is, you know, from the point of view of neurons firing, there's no external world. There's stuff coming from, from the various sense organs and, um, you know, connections being made, those connections, by the way, are, uh, I think the consensus is starting to be that they're largely kind of statistical and probabilistic, mm -hmm. um, a biological rolling of, of the odds based on <laughs> past experience and immediate associations. And, you know, the more they look at the brain, they, they, it kind of boils down to that, which is interesting. But apart, apart from that, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's so it's a world that isn't preset. It's one that you're always figuring out in front of the point of the brain. 
um, that's all there is. <laughs> now, if you if you figure out that you can drive through a wall, you will find that you cannot drive through a wall <laughs> without some consequences. But you know, that's again, the brain has to figure that out after it happens. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But but so in I'm rolling this up uh, since I'm watching our clock and I'm rolling this up a bit here uh, to um, so the first line in the way Peter uh, what Peter called the, his and now our way of thinking about practice and that first line says one makes a conscious choice see that was in and the rest uh -huh. of it goes on but this notion of of our investing our consciousness, you know, yeah. putting it out there and then building on that uh, more and more levels of awareness of what mm -hmm. would be w rewarding and, and threatening about going after those kind of uh, achievements. But it starts with first you make a conscious choice that you're going to do something consistently well over time. Uh, well, yeah. Well, so how do we get to that conscious and choice as we're, as we're wrapping up? Well, I think what we're saying is that statement, first we make a conscious choice, is a tremendously complex process under the hood going on. Yes. And it's one that goes right back to <laughs> the origins of, of life on Earth yeah. at some levels. And the evolution of humans and language and all of social history and you know the way the way you know our neurochemistry works and everything else to to mean that it's on the one hand certainly not a simple stimulus uh, externally mm -hmm. and on the other hand it's not some uh, idea in, in the abstract sense that um can be pointed to as the single cause of our choice it's all that coming together at the moment and the best and and in most of the time we don't really reflect upon it mm -hmm. i think from this inaction perspective we're we're looking at some other ways to think about it like what can you actually know when you really look closely and we can't know everything but we can at least see well what do people say to make things relevant to each other, to make that choice relevant for the moment. Yeah. And if you look, you know, if you had a recording, then you could say, well, probabilistically, that was probably how I would have predicted that choice to happen. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of industries out there trying to persuade us in our choices. Oh, yeah. And they're, um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of looking at some of those, some of those methods of persuading choices they think are just setting up stimuluses, but we know the secret, yes, which we, we will provide for a seven figure consultation um, oh, that, because, yeah. you know, I've got my five points I've never revealed yet. Um, <laughs> oh, I'm, 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 I'm sorry. I didn't let you do those five. Points. Yeah. But you know, well, you know, again, that's, you know, when we get, we get when we get our premium level Patreon, then yeah, we'll see well, but at the moment. Folks, <laughs> five points that I, I held <laughs> off uh, and, and we tease, but you know, there really is something to the cost of attention, isn't there? Mm -hmm. And if I, uh, and I was engaged in listening to what you were saying and 
really listening, uh, I also postponed the time that we could be talking about those five principles. So here's what we're going to do in the last minute or two. A teaser. <laughs> Give us one of those things that you would have told us about, and we'll pick it up. <laughs> On the next, on the next conversation. Well, I don't know exactly what what we missed. There's lots of. I think we've kind of uh, blended lots of the components together, and and almost to the extent of all the meanderings I had during um, grad school. So um, maybe going forward, we can um, go back to some applications or pick mm -hmm. some other ideas, like what is leadership? Yeah. What is uh, you know things of that sort. The, yeah. the staples of organizational behavior, perhaps. Well, I want to do that leadership one fairly soon because I'm, I, I kind of got my uh, myself into a, a, a global um, <laughs> funhouse. Uh, in early September, uh, there's a wonderful guy, Joe Raylan, who we did a podcast with quite a while ago, who's very uh, keen on the notion that leadership is a practice but it's not necessarily an individual practice it's a, it's a an emergent practice that people sure. do together <laughs> and so my uh session that i'll be doing in this campfire they call it is uh, well yes it's collective leadership is fascinating and i'm definitely interested in exploring it but what about the individual <laughs> what what happens to the individual if we move our attention to the collective uh, and is there something even in the collective that at the individual level is pumping out mm -hmm. <laughs> moments of leadership practice so it'll be fun to uh, play with that maybe you can help me prep because i'm sure. not going to give a talk i'm just going to say okay let's talk about this and see where it goes mm -hmm. that'll be coming up in early september so yeah your old man he keeps <laughs> when is he just going to sit back? Oh, you know, that's, that's what keeps the brain healthy. I hope so. You need that. You need <laughs> that from mom and me. Okay. Well, thank you again, Dave. This is, oh man, I just love these conversations and I hope our listeners, I know our listeners will. You have a couple of fans that I keep hearing from, from time to time. So uh, let's keep this going. Well, Next time, if we don't get to the five things that Dave wanted to tell us about. No, 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 no. Those are those are for the seven-figure consultation fee. You know? So <laughs> we're, we're keeping that on the side. Okay, we got it. <laughs> we will talk about leadership. No, Google can call. You know, otherwise we'll we'll keep it to. to I've rambled broadly enough, so we'll we'll try to keep it focused. <laughs> not a ramble, man. Month. It's not. It's thinking out loud, which is something that you do very well. So thanks again. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Practice Podcasts, where we discuss practice with a capital P. If you'd like to hear more, listen in on Spotify, Automatic, and Apple Podcasts, or go to inactionresearch.com slash podcasts page. And if you'd like to learn more about social inaction and the nature of practice, head over to inactionresearch.com for more information. Thank you for supporting this show. We look forward to hearing from you soon.